Alright, so everybody knows how VPN services and ExpressVPN can protect your privacy and security online, right? But did you know that there are some secret hidden benefits to using ExpressVPN, like unlocking movies and shows that are only available in other countries? So if you're like me, you probably enjoy watching shows on Netflix, for example. Well, with ExpressVPN, you can unlock the UK version of The Office or Parasite from South Korean Netflix. Over a hundred different countries. All you have to do is change your location and refresh Netflix or whatever. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. In fact, when I set it up for myself, I was surprised at how easy it was. It just installs and then loads up and works. And it works on more than just PCs, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and so much more. So if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows, use my link right now, expressvpn.com slash ringslore, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash ringslore, expressvpn.com slash ringslore to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Lord of the Rings Lorecast, the show that explores the background of Tolkien's amazing world from the very beginning. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Normally, I don't intro the show like this but this is a different week things are a little bit different for me i'm out of town again i'm traveling and i wanted to record something in order to make sure that everybody got an episode this week and put something out there so this is kind of a combined regular episode because it's going up on the regular feed but it's a little bit more in the i don't know the tone and the uh the area of the bonus episodes. So we're kind of splitting it a little bit, but I wanted to make sure everybody had something to listen to. So thank you for tuning in. And uh, the other difficulty was that because I'm recording this ahead of time, I would have had to somehow fit this episode in the order of the other episodes. And I'm I'm never 100% sure how that's going to work out until I actually record the other episodes. So we're doing something completely different. I'm answering a question, or actually I'm delving into a topic that has come up and uh, one of our patrons actually pointed out recently. So Katie S. from the Patreon, thank you for bringing this up, uh, had brought this to my attention and said, oh, there is absolutely enough there to tie Turin and Oedipus together for a full episode. And I was like, hmm, interesting. So you got my little, uh, my little lore antenna wiggling that's a weird that doesn't work um but anyway i got into to researching this a little bit kind of refreshed myself on the oedipus story and have found a very interesting paper this presentation that was written by jonathan richards this is back in may of 2020 and um 
in doing the research, I found a, a lot of different conversations online about the similarities and differences and differences different people's opinions about all of this. But this one in particular, I wanted to go through because it highlights everything I would have pointed out myself and does it in, in an even better way because it actually uses some academic uh, language in order to explain the different sections of the story and how you label each of the sections of the story. So I thought it would be really fun to go through this and analyze how similar these stories are and maybe how different they are. So thank you for joining me for this episode. So let's just get into it. All right, so let's start at the top. I'm going to read through this document and chime in with some of my own thoughts and things. But it's actually very well constructed, and I highly recommend going check it out. If you if you want to search this, look for Tragic Hero Comparison of Turin and Oedipus. It'll come right up when you search it. And so we have to start at the beginning. What is a tragic hero? They, at the beginning of this document, they define that. And the author says, a tragic hero is a person who evokes pity and fear from the audience by experiencing great misfortune as a result of some character flaw or flaws which lead to their downfall. That sounds very accurate. And I'm going to be coming at this from a perspective of we've already gone over the Turin story. So for the most part, we understand how this applies, right? I don't think any of us would say that Turin was without any tra tragic character flaws. What were Turin's Character flaws? Well, there was a certain sense of pride. He had this feeling that he could, as as many times as he got knocked down, he got back up again. But he also saw himself as being able to take on anything in his path. And that leads to great moments and also terrible moments at the same time. So... Let's I'm going to put that there. We'll circle back around to this, I'm sure. So we get a word at the beginning. There's four different sections or four different definitions of the way that this story plays out. And the first one is parapecia. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. It is the reversal of circumstances or turning point that the hero experiences. And in this document, they lay it out. Turin's parapecia. This occurs through Turin's life in increasingly tragic ways, with hardly any light ever breaking through the darkening clouds of his doom capitalized. And what little light does break through, providing only to make the darkness darker by comparison. Every change of circumstance is for the worse, and there is no bright side in Turin's life. The moment of his true parapecia from which Turin's subsequent woes can be traced may therefore be argued to be when Morgoth curses Hurin and all of his kin. As Christopher Tolkien writes in the introduction of the children of Hurin, the curse of such a being who can claim that, quote, the shadow of my purpose lies upon Arda, the earth, and all that is in it bends slowly and surely to my will, is unlike the curses or imprecations of beings of far less power. Meaning, basically, Morgoth is the only one powerful enough to even claim this at all. Morgoth is not invoking evil or calamity on Hurin and his children. He is not calling on a higher power to be the agent, for he, 
master of the fates of Arda, as he named himself to Hurin, intends to bring about the ruin of his enemy by the force of his own gigantic will. Thus he designs the future of those whom he hates. And so he says to Hurin, Upon all whom you love, my thought shall weigh as a cloud of doom, and it shall bring them down into darkness and despair. And this is exactly what we see. Morgoth is able to actually do this because he's powerful enough. And he sets into motion a a number of things that foil uh, Turin at every turn. But Turin's own personality and, and attempt to get out of the situation through his own pride and self-reliance alone is often what what is his downfall right like he he has friends but he never really relies on his friends he has places where he can be safe but he always strays back out into the danger he keeps driving himself toward this doom without even realizing it and th- I think this is something we see similarly about Oedipus. So let's talk about Oedipus's parapetia. Oedipus experiences parapetia at three main points. First, when he flees from Corinth after the oracle at Delphi conser- confirms the rumored prophecy that he will murder his father and marry his mother. Now, this is the core of the story, is that Oedipus gets uh, basically let go by his father. His father is given this omen, this doom, if you want to use Tolkien's words that his son will kill him that he will die at at the blade of his son and his son will marry his wife basically his his son's mother and so the father tries to stop this by from happening by getting rid of the infant son after the son is born Uh, and there are ways that this happens in the ancient world and it's all terrible and and kind of you know uh, It makes us in the modern world feel very uncomfortable, but uh, the son survives, gets uh, found by somebody else and then, of course, nurtured into an adult um, or at least a young man who eventually becomes an adult. Anyway, it goes on. It says his true parentage unknown to him, this well-intentioned effort to avoid his fate actually puts him on a tragic trajectory, which brings him closer to his real parents and the prophecy's fulfillment. Second, when the prophet Teresias Teresius, maybe, declares Oedipus to be the murderer of Laius, his father. Oedipus is launched from his position of being a good king, seeking to find and condemn Laius' murderer in order to lift the plague on the city, to being the cause of the city's suffering and standing self-condemned by his own words. Third, when the shepherd who found Oedipus as a baby confirms that he was, in fact, from the house of Laius, or Laius, I don't know how to pronounce that, and Jocasta, his wife, his doom finally stares him straight in the face and he can no longer avert his eyes. So they both have these tragic situations kind of thrust on them and then they drive themselves further toward them. Now, let's talk about the phrase anognorisis. Anognorisis is the point of recognition or discovery where the hero realizes the true nature of his or her situation. And again, both of these characters go through that. They spend most of their time unaware of this, but then at some point there's this moment of like the light bulb goes on and they go, oh, I've been playing into my doom the whole time. So let's talk about Turin. With Hurin captive and estranged from his kin, Turin does not realize that he and his family have been cursed by Morgoth. The first hint of anognorisis is Turin's life is seen 
which is a strange sentence, but we'll keep moving. Turin's life is seen after he meets an elf named Gwyndor, who is an escaped thrall from Angband, Morgoth's fortress. Gwyndor says that he has not seen Hurin himself, but shares that it is rumored that he still defies Morgoth and that Morgoth has placed a curse upon him and all his kin. Another clear instance of an anagnorisis, man, that word is hard, is seen years later unraveling the brief bliss that Turin seemed to have found as he attempts to hide from his fate by changing his name. Near the end of the tale, Turin learns that he has unknowingly wed his sister, Neonor, who, after encountering the dragon Glarung, had lost all memory, including of her own identity and consequently playing a part in driving her to commit suicide after she also realizes what happens. And this is this is part of where this plays together, right? Once Turin understands that he's under a curse, he attempts to avoid it multiple times by changing his name in order to avoid the, the curse. Maybe the name follows the curse, right? This kind of thing. It never really says that, but that's part of the idea is that he takes on a new identity. He's trying to shed the past identity, his past mistakes, and he takes on a new identity. But in doing this, he then conceals himself from his actual sister who would have recognized the name Turin and never married him. But I guess that, well, she loses her memory, so maybe she wouldn't have noticed that anyway. Either way, it's still bad for both of them, I guess you could say. Um, Yeah, I guess I have to think about that a little bit more. She probably wouldn't have recognized. She didn't remember anything. So even if he was named Turin, she may not have noticed. Um, But here, let's talk about Oedipus. His anagnorisis accompanies his parapetia and vice versa. It occurs gradually through the story as he learns more and more information concerning his true identity from Teresius. Teresius, man, names, and the messengers to Jocasta herself. All right, so the next theme is catastrophe. This is a word that we still have in English. It means a events causing great and often sudden damage or suffering. Catastrophes happen all the time. There are catastrophes in each of these individuals' lives. Let's talk about Turin. Catastrophe permeates Turin's life, but the single most impactful to and encapsulating instance of catastrophe in Turin's life may easily be said to be in his accidental slaying of his friend Belig, who, with Gwyndor, was trying to rescue him. This happens a few different times, where he accidentally turns against his own friends or whoever, and usually it's in, in an accident. He responds hastily, That's another good Tolkien word. And something tragic happens, usually some form of catastrophe. Turin's poor choices and the doom that stalks him begin to manifest themselves more quickly at this point and prove that they, despite his best efforts and intentions, will not be easily outrun. I like the image of like this dark shadow that just follows him. And every so often he makes his way out of the shadow only for it to catch up again. It kind of feels like that, right? This goes on, it says, but the full catastrophe of the children of Hurin comes to its dark fruition at the end of the story when Morgoth's curse and Glarung's lies catch up to both Turin and Neonor in a scene that gives Romeo and Juliet a run for its money. Yeah, this is the whole, like, there's definitely some Shakespearean stuff in here, too. That's one of those moments. When Turin lay in a swoon and thought to be dead by Neonor, Glarung, with his last breath, declares to Neonor that she is, in fact, the sister of Turin, a stabber in the dark, treacherous to foes, 
faithless to friends and a curse unto his kin. Turin, son of Hurin, but the worst of all his deeds you shall feel in yourself. Neonor is also pregnant, stunned and shaking with horror and anguish. She runs to her death, casting herself from a cliff into a nearby river. Turin stirs awake and after learning of what's just transpired, ends his life by placing the hilt of his sword upon the ground and casting himself upon it. Turin's father, Hurin, is later released from Angband and after wandering some time in search of his family, finds his wife Morwen sitting by the gravestone of their children. As the sun sets, Morwen dies of sheer grief for what has happened. Hurin later drowns himself in the Western Sea. Thus Morgoth's curse against Hurin and his kin was fulfilled. Now, we know this all too well because we <laughs> just went through all of the story stuff a few weeks ago. Um, but yeah, obviously, this is the culmination of everything. It, his curse tears all of them apart. And in the end, they all learn about the tragedy. And so they know how, to, how horrific everything has become and played out for them. All right. So let's talk about Oedipus. As foretold, catastrophe strikes close to home for Oedipus. Literally, when the prophecy finally proves to be true, Jocasta commits suicide. So similar suicide of the woman uh, partner, like the accidental marriage partner <laughs> in both of these, right? Uh, the sister and the, and the mother, both accidentally married, commit suicide. And Oedipus blinds himself by stabbing his eyes with pins. So in both of these, there's a stabbing, but in Oedipus, he doesn't necessarily die. There's a few different versions of the story. So it's not exactly the same, but it's similar. Cast from a state of power and respect to one of shame and suffering, Catastrophe's pursuit of Oedipus was one he could not shake, despite trying to run from it. The catastrophe is made more severe by how undeserving it seems and how powerless Oedipus was to prevent the prophecy from fulfilling itself. So in both of these situations, you end up with this tragic end and the uh, the tragic heroes inflict on themselves their own punishment, which is kind of a similarity there. So there's one more section, but we need to go thank our patrons. And this is going to be a quick one because I'm not going to read any of the, the new ones because it's an episode I'm doing ahead of time. So I can't predict that. So if you've recently signed up and you're like, oh, he's going to read my name out. Uh, you're gonna have to wait wait a week. Uh, I'll be back next week with that stuff. But here, let's go thank the patrons, and I will be right back. So let me tell you a little story. You know that we get sponsors on these podcasts, and Yuffie, who does these smart locks with video cameras in them, reached out and they sent me a smart door lock with a 2K camera, a doorbell, and a finger reader, all the bells and whistles. And I was like, okay, cool. They sent it to me. I already have one on my back door. When I opened this up and installed it, I was like, why didn't I go with Yuffie to begin with? Because this is a step above the one that I've been using. The finger reader just works. The 2K camera is so clear. I can see when somebody's at the front door, if it's Amazon or if it's somebody trying to sell me something. It even has night vision and works in the dark. It makes me feel so much safer. Plus, my son can just put his finger on the door and just come right in when he gets home from school. He doesn't have to worry about losing keys and you don't even have to change the batteries in these because it's got like a 10,000 milliwatt hour battery that lasts for like four months. 
Go check these out today. Search for Eufy Video Lock, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock, or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door. Again, search Eufy Video Lock. I think you'll love it. All right. Big shout out to all of the patrons, everybody who helps support the show financially. Thank you for that. Everyone who supports the show in any way. Thank you so much as well. I couldn't do this without you here. Let's go through the list of the VIP patrons. They get shout outs every week. We have Anakin Skywalker, Austin C, Azzle Razzle, Bo, Brad S, Brandy D, Chewbacca, David S, David M, Drupal, Esoteric Rage, Fulcrum, Gavin Olaf, Goldberry, Jesse P, Katie S, Capanna, Larry, Michael E, Nick K, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Rivqua, Sam B, TJ T, Wes P, and Who Let the Juan Out. Thank you so much for all of your support and every single one of you. Currently, as I'm doing this, there are 182 of you. Thank you so much. And thank you to anybody who leads, leaves a uh, review or rating or tells your friends about the show or anything like that at all. Absolutely wonderful. I, could, I, I say this every week. I couldn't do this without you. So thank you. Um, that's all I'm going to say in the middle of this one. I hope you're having a wonderful week. I will be back next week and there isn't a bonus episode this week. This is kind of just the combo bonus regular episode thing. Anyway, uh, it's what I could do in order to get something out for everybody to not have a gap, but most weeks there is a bonus episode. And if you want access to over 60 of them, all sorts of different conversations, things like this, things like uh, pulling out your comments and responding to them, listening to interviews and responding to those, digging a little bit deeper in certain kind of meta concepts, that kind of stuff. So if you're looking for deeper stuff, all of that is on the Patreon and you're welcome to sign up even temporarily. This is one of those things a lot of people consider when they think about Patreon is like being a subscriber, just staying a subscriber. You're absolutely welcome to do that. Don't get me wrong. But if you are curious about those bonus episodes and you just want to sign up for like a month or two and get through them, feel free to do that as well. All of that in the end supports the show. And that's awesome. So thank you for being here. Thank you for your support. Let's move on with the rest of the episode. All right, so we are to the final theme that they have in common. Actually, there's two together in this one. It's Hamartia, H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A. I've never heard this word before. And hubris, which I have heard. Hamartia is a fatal flaw leading to the downfall of a tragic hero. And hubris is excessive pride or self-confidence. So you put those two together and you end up with this theme. So, of course, let's start with. Turin. In Turin's case, his hubris is his Hamartia. Marsha Hamartia. Words are hard. It goes on and says, it is his pride that leads to his downfall. His unwillingness to stand before the king's judgment, even in a matter where he would have been quickly pardoned, leads him to flee Doriath and join a band of outlaws in the wild. This is, though not the beginning of his sorrows, the point of their escalation. Turin has many friends who would help him, and many try, but he lets his pride get the better of him. For him, it is either going to be his way or the highway. 
to Doriath Turin could not, or in pride would not, return to the lesser folk of Haleth and Brethel. He did not deem to go. This is an actual quote from it. Like he he saw that these were not options. He closed these options off to himself specifically. These are my words. And and so therefore his pride kept him from going to the solution that he actually needed. It goes on and says, seldom will he listen to any counsel but his own or pay any heed to information given to him from friends. This happens again and again and again. We see it all the time. Turin is constantly defining for himself where he's going and what's going on and will almost never actually take the counsel of other people into consideration. He blinds himself on what the best ideas are moving forward. It goes on and says, with a heavy curse on his life, it's hard to say whether things would have been much better, but at the least his woes may have been less self-wrought had he listened more to the warnings of his friends. Don't go it alone. I think that's the lesson here, maybe. And I, I've thought a lot about Turin, obviously. Um, I mean, you can't do a show like this without taking on the topics and then really considering them. But I think maybe that's really the warning message here. Like if you were to take away a lesson in all of this, it's listen to your friends. <laughs> Don't go it alone. Don't think that you have all the answers all the time. Sometimes other people are there and sometimes they have wisdom too. So don't close yourself off to it. All right. So what about Oedipus? Whatever flaws Oedipus may have, it doesn't seem to be what leads him to his doom in the fulfillment of the prophecy. His doom seems to do that. And he appears powerless to change his cards. His Hamartia might be his trusting nature, his willingness to believe the prophecy so much so that he would leave his Corinthian life and wander elsewhere. Perhaps he should have been more careful not to get into fights with older men or into bed with older women. Because in the story, he runs into his father, doesn't know that it's his father. The father insults him and they get in a fight and he kills his father. Now, had he never, never left, that may not have ever happened, right? He wouldn't have gotten a fight with an older man he didn't know. Also, he didn't know that she was his mother and then gets into bed with her, right? Like, whoops. Uh, certainly his own fervency to find out the truth of who killed Laius backfired as he helped cut off the proverbial branch on which he sat. Oedipus's hubris is more easily recognized than his Marcia. His pride leads him to murder Laius and his men and respond arrogantly to his dealings with other characters in the play, most notably Teresius and Creon. So they have similarities there, right? Turin and Oedipus are both suffering from pride. The way that they are drawn into their doom is slightly different in each of those cases. With Turin, it is almost 100% because of that pride. In Oedipus, it's, it's a little bit of believing the prophecy. He seems to know that this doom is on him before Turin does. But then Turin also seems to believe that this is a thing. Every time something terrible happens, he blames it on the doom. He he never actually looks inward and sees himself as the cause. And he gets sad about things. He goes into these moments of like depression and withdrawal from everybody. And then he comes out of it again. And it's like the the few moments in Turin's life where he might possibly turn inward and see that 
maybe he needs to change the way he's interacting with the world around him because that's causing the problems ultimately and more importantly keeping him from the solution he could go back to Doriath. he could live a life in the service to Thingol, helping protect the people of Doriath, and then maybe through that, helping out his family with the power of the elves at Doriath in order to give them a place to live and and maybe the other people that live in that community. But instead, he drives further and further from the help and guidance of other people who might be wise and powerful in ways that he is not. So let's talk about the conclusion. The conclusion of the paper says, the tragic heroes, one could argue that Turin veers more on the side of heroism as a protagonist and that Oedipus's life may be more tragic. What is less disputable is that all may safely say that here indeed are two of the most worthy individuals to bear the title of tragic hero. And yeah, and I think that's true. I think that this, for the most part, this does a, a really good job of summarizing the similarities. Um, the other thing that really stands out to me here in this story and now thinking again about Turin is Turin may have been suffering a psychological thing that we see in our own world a lot and the name of which is based on Greek mythology was Turin a narcissist and I I raise this question because I in my own life have had uh, situations where I have been in and around very obvious narcissists and it becomes more and more obvious as I get older um, people I know personally uh, somebody I used to work for and I've seen and I, I study these things right like I don't just react to them I look at them and I try to compartmentalize and figure it out I look at the psychology of what's going on and the similarities between other people who seem to have the same thing I'm not a psychologist but I've read enough to know that they're their patterns, right? And the way that different kinds of people interact with the world creates certain patterns of processing things. One of the things that narcissists tend to do, and one of the reasons why they're impervious to actual self introspection is that for the first point, they can't see themselves as being the root of their own problems. They can't Actually, they don't actually have the emotional bandwidth or capacity to see themselves as being the wrong in the wrong or the bad guy or anything like that. They're always the hero of their story. And anytime they are given evidence to the contrary, that they're doing something wrong, that they hurt somebody, that people are legitimately and justly upset with them, anything like that. There's this moment of consideration where they begin to internalize it. And then all of a sudden it's like the shields go up and that bounces back out and they come up with some sort of alternate justification for why that is not the case. Well, that's no, because I did this for good reasons and you just took it the wrong way or whatever. They justify it. And in order to justify it, they are constantly fighting back at the reality of the world around them. So this unchecked which most of the time is because narcissists have a hard time actually admitting to themselves they have a problem and going and getting psychiatric help or therapy or anything like that this unchecked over time grows worse and worse and worse and they become more and more disconnected from reality because they cannot see themselves as being the source of their own problems 
Turin, I think, goes through something very similar. The few moments in his life where he actually has these moments where he could have, when he did something wrong and then felt bad about it and lamented the, you know, the woe is me, went through these moments of depression, separating himself from everybody else. In those moments, he could have actually looked at the situation and gone, you know what? I was wrong. I need to go back and apologize. You know what? I was wrong. I need to change the way I make decisions. And yet he can't. At no point is he actually able to do that. And it drives him further and further and further toward his doom. Now, is that a feature of the curse itself? Maybe. You have to look at it through Tolkien's eyes. Would Tolkien see some form of psychiatric disability as being something imposed by Morgoth? Probably. I think I think a lot of the evils, a lot of the suffering of this world, and I'm talking Arda, is because of Morgoth's influence and infecting the world with his own will, against the will of Iluvatar. I don't think Iluvatar created elves and men to be so prideful that they do terrible things to each other. I think that's the influence of Morgoth a lot of times. Now, I say that cautiously because I'm now thinking about characters like Feanor. Feanor has pride. Pride is very much Feanor's downfall as well. Does pri- Is pride a feature of simply being very, very good at things? He was the greatest of the elves. He was the most powerful. He was able to make the Silmarils. Is there a feature in the quality of your being when you are at the top of something that leads to your own downfall by necessity? Or is that something that is only actually inherent in Morgoth and then somehow infected Feanor? And it's not that Feanor didn't have interactions with Morgoth. He did. So how does that play out? Was it, is it just part of nature? Did Iluvatar make flawed individuals? Maybe. Or are these flaws all, do they all come from Morgoth? I think that's another question. And I think it's worth exploring. And maybe the answer is a little bit of both. I don't have a final decision about this. Uh, this is one of those concepts I'm just going to kind of keep floating there. Um, which I think, by the way, is probably the most intellectually honest way of holding on to ideas and beliefs is to let them float in the air and become more or less validated with time, but rarely saying that this is 100% accurate or true or, you know, what I, I, this is one of those human nature things. I don't know why we have to put categories all the way to the right or to the left. This is 100% what I believe and this is all verified and it's never going to be broken and I'm never going to see any information ever again that's going to doubt this or I totally believe this is false 100% of the time and it's never going to change my mind. That, that feature of human thinking is uh, very dangerous and also leads to the kinds of things that Turin goes through. So so I think it's wise to kind of keep things floating in the middle and go, yeah, I think this is more likely than this, but I'm still open to different perspectives or proof, you know, like, why do we why do we got to push everything to the boundaries? Anyway, just just some thoughts for you on this sort of different episode. And I hope you are enjoying the show. I hope. You're uh, excited about where things are going, and um, I'm hoping I'm having a wonderful time on my trip. So 
Uh, <laughs> I actually, here's what I did. I'll, I'll leave this here at the end of the episode. My wife goes on travel for work on occasion. And uh, one of the she she runs a research lab at a major university. And one of the things that they do is they have these conferences where everybody working on similar types of science get together every year. So she goes to these events and I believe it's like every other year it's in Europe and every other year it's in the United States. And this year it's in Europe. And so we're going to, she's going and getting flown out there for free because it's part of her job. So when that happens, it's like, well, it's like a half price trip. If I just, for mine because she already got her trip so she's she already did her thing by the time you're listening to this she already did her thing for the week up there um and i'm now over there and we're now taking a week to just go do something else so um this should be fun i I like as an american getting to see places in europe because it's very different and there's a lot of history and that's clearly something that i'm super into so um but thank you for tuning in and if i happen to be near any of you maybe who knows this would be weird what if I run into some of the listeners of the show while I'm doing my uh, my trip over in Europe and I don't even know it and you don't even know it either. That would be super weird. But if you see a guy that looks like me, you can look up um, pictures of there's pictures of me all over the Internet. If you want, if you're looking if you're looking around for a guy that looks like me and you happen to see me, say hi. Uh, or maybe it's too late by now. I don't know when this episode's going up. All right. Thank you for being here, everybody. I will see you next time. Have a wonderful week. Thanks for listening to the Lord of the Rings Lorecast. If you'd like to learn more about other fantasy worlds, check out my other podcasts, the Elder Scrolls Lorecast, the Witcher Lorecast, and more at robotsradio.net. If you'd like to reach out, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a note on Twitter at robots underscore radio, or join our amazing community on the Robots Radio Discord. There are links in the show notes, or just search Robots Radio Discord, or find the link on robotsradio.net. I'll see you next time.